Let me invite you this morning to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I know your first thought is just last week we were in Ephesians chapter 2. Why are we going backwards? Um, we're not. <laughs> we are summing up this morning a couple of these, well, a key piece in these verses. Uh, I'm actually going to read from verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down through chapter 2, verse 10. Um, but I want to emphasize a phrase that we're going to see over and over and over again, and that's the phrase I want us to rest in this morning. Um, as you have your word open, as you have your word on, if you're reading it on an electronic device, that's fine. Um, but let me encourage you to focus in on these on these phrases. I'll try to emphasize them as I read them. I think I got all of them highlighted in my notes. But uh, I want us to think about this idea of what does it mean to be in Christ. In Christ. If you would follow along with me, I'm going to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, and read down through Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be blameless, or should we be, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Chapter 1, verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believe in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? According to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Christ, with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the depth of your word. And this morning specifically, we thank you that you have chose us to be in Christ. That by your grace and through our faith, we are in him. That we are blessed in Him. That we have our peace and our power and our love in Him. Father, this morning I pray that you help us to see. And you grow us in His image. Your workmanship. Creating us to look like Christ. That we would love you more. That we would know you better. That we would love our neighbor better. That we would walk this journey in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. When Paul writes to the Ephesian church, they're living in a culture that's not too unlike our own. There was confusion. There was confusion about truth. There was confusion about politics. There was confusion about worship. There was confusion about sexuality. There was confusion about nearly everything. This is evident even in the words that Paul uses in writing this letter. When Paul writes, or when Paul tells Christians in Ephesians chapter 2 that they are God's workmanship, in verse 10, he is contradicting the Ephesian teaching that the goddess Artemis, who had the largest temple in the region, the primary deity of worship. It was taught that her image fell from heaven, the workmanship of the gods. Paul says, you are God's workmanship. This is why this letter is so important for the church today. In their culture, like ours, truth has been internalized. It's been internalized. It's been this way forever, really, but especially in our culture for over a century now. 
What do I mean by truth is internalized? I mean that we can rationally say, and for some reason it makes sense in our world, I have my truth and you have your truth. And somehow in this world that makes sense. Because truth is something we generate in ourselves. But beloved, this truth will always fail us. Paul, along with the rest of the New Testament, and especially with Jesus, Paul is teaching us that there is one truth. And that truth is not something of our creation. It is outside of us. And it is objective and universal. The world rejects any idea that truth is objective. That truth is something that stands outside of our own making. The world rejects any idea that the truth is universal. Which means if it's true for you, it's true for me, and it's true for all 7.5 whatever billion people who are living on the earth today. Truth is truth. The world rejects that idea, but in the church, for the most part, we generally accept that truth is universal and objective and knowable. But church, here is where we have failed our culture. And maybe, especially, we have failed our younger generation. To some extent, from my generation onward, we have failed to provide Christ followers with a unified understanding of this truth. And instead of seeking God in Christ through His Word to answer the difficult questions of life, we've passed them over and left generations to try to figure it out on their own. We, all of us, young and old alike, men and women alike, every race, every economic status, every everything, we are not just seeking a truth, but we are seeking the truth. The truth that makes a difference in our lives. How does the Bible, God, Jesus, the church, how does it make a difference in my relationships? How does the Bible, God, Jesus, the church make a difference in all of my confusions? How does the Bible, God, Jesus, the church make a difference in my fears and in my anxieties? How do they make a difference? How do they answer the questions of war and sex and sexuality and gender and education and justice and race and immigration and social status and social media? Popularity. How do they answer the questions about getting a job, growing up, going to college, going to trade school, finding a husband or wife, raising a kid? How does it answer questions about gas prices and politics? How does it answer the question about who I should vote for? What about answering questions about medical care, pandemics, and vaccines, masks, and NTI? How does God, how does the Bible, how does Jesus, how does the church answer the questions about how teachers and nurses and police officers are treated by their employers, by the populace and the media? 
and all the media. Do we trust them or do we not? If so, who? And if we can, when? And if we can't trust them, where do we get our reliable news? What about weather tragedies, abuse, loss of parents, loss of a spouse, loss of a child, suicide, crime rates, mental health? Do I follow my heart? Can I really be anything I want to be? Where should I live? What if I hate my parents? What if my parents hate me? Beloved, there are 10,000 more questions. There are 10,000 more questions that we ask every single day, consciously or unconsciously. And for many of us, we claim that Christianity has all these answers. We just don't know where they are and we don't know where to find them. And I'm sorry, we really can't find anybody who's willing to talk about it. Too many times. And I know I sound critical here. And maybe I am being just a little bit too judgmental. But too many times we come to church to be seen or to be needed or to be entertained. Too many youth ministries and children's ministries are more concerned about how far you can shoot Coca-Cola from your nose in the last messy games event than whether or not we know that the sovereign Christ is in us. The hope of glory. The risen Savior. And what difference he makes when we face sufferings or have questions. Paul takes a very different approach. And for the wise Christian and the wise church, we should follow his pattern and take a different approach as well. And here's the key. To these questions and the thousand more, they boil down to our asking ourselves that if our life if our life has value, if our life has significance, if our life has love, and if the life we live has hope. Value, significance, love, and hope. And maybe, even more importantly than those questions, than the questions of value and significance and love and hope, Maybe the more important question is this. Are those things found within me or are they found outside of me? Do I have to create that meaning? Or is it something that I can learn or know? Or maybe, maybe it's something that is revealed. Maybe it's something that is uncovered to me. And in it, in that meaning, in that truth, I can rest. And to this, Paul says, in Christ. Fourteen times in these 32 verses, Paul uses the prepositional phrase, in Christ, in Him, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, and in the Beloved. He uses it more throughout the rest of this book. But 14 times in those verses that I just read, over and over and over and over again. One of the principles of sound hermeneutics, hermeneutics is how you study your Bible. One of the principles of sound hermeneutics is if you see something that is repeated over and over and over again, pause, take a closer look, because it has a deeper meaning. 
And 14 times in 32 verses, I would say that the phrase in Christ has a deeper meaning. Because here, while we don't find the answer about who we should vote for in the next election cycle, we do find the answers to the most pressing questions in life. And here we find a frame for which, for which we can find the answers to all those particular questions that lay ahead of us. I'm not going to try to touch on every single instance of Paul's use of in Christ. I'm not going to create a 14-point sermon here, all right? So you can breathe deeply. But I do want us to see how being in Christ makes these life questions answerable. So let's talk about value. Let's talk about value. The world defines value as your capacity to contribute to society. And we place a very high value on a wide array of characteristics. We value entertainers like movie and TV stars, athletes and music icons because we, we really value entertainment. We value social media status. Especially we value the likes, the shares, and the comments. There is even a new career path that teenagers primarily are following called social media influencers. They get on TikTok and dance or sing or wiggle or do whatever it is they do. And they generate hundreds of thousands or even millions of followers. And advertisers are paying these folks, again, most of them kids, multiple millions of dollars to advertise on their sites. We value the little guy who stands up against the bully. That's why my generation loved the Rocky movies. Poor, beat-down Philly kid who won the world championship. That's why we love Captain America. I don't like bullies. I don't care where they're from. I can do this all day. And to be honest, while very few of us really understand the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, we love, I'm going to try to pronounce his name, we love Vladimir Zelensky, who says, I need ammunition, not a ride. The problem with all of these, and the problem with seeking value in these is this. That value wanes. It fades over time. Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player in the history of the NBA. And that really needs no discussion. But listen. I'm sure he could hold his own for a while. But he is 59 years old now and I doubt seriously that he would make a big impact on the court if he were to pick up a ball and begin to play right now. Value wanes. External factors of value will always rise and fall. But there is a source of value that never, ever fades. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Paul says we, saints, he says Christians, listen what he says, are blessed in 
Christ with every spiritual blessing. In Christ with every spiritual blessing. Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not lay do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart, there your heart will also be. The Apostle Peter calls these treasures an, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Okay, so you say it's nice we have a valuable treasure in heaven kept. But what about me? What about what about now? Friends, I know there's still a lot of questions surrounding the doctrine of predestination. But if it teaches us anything, it teaches us that God does not find our value in anything in this world. But listen, and listen closely, please. He chose to value you and me before he did anything else. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of your of his will. Your value is not found in yourself or in this world. If it were, first of all, it would be of little value. And second of all, what value there was would not last. God's value and the value he places on you began before the foundation of the world. And it's not some arbitrary value like when you got picked last in gym class. God intentionally, willfully, according to His purpose and will, God intentionally chose to value you. And to value you as much as He values His only begotten Son. To value you the way he values Jesus. Our redemption, Paul says here, is through his blood. And when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. And listen, please, because there's more. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And now we are his workmanship, being created and recreated in Christ Jesus. We struggle to find value. This, this world. And I'm so sorry that even in many church cultures, you'll struggle to find where your true value is. <coughs> But beloved, it's summed up in this ever so small prepositional phrase. In Christ. I've got to move on. 
What about significance? What about significance? There's a key area in the realm of significance I want us to focus on this morning. We oftentimes ask the question, ask ourselves, am I really making a difference in this world? I remember a few years ago when 12-year-old Malala Yousafzai, I think I'm pronouncing that right, was tragically shot in the face on a school bus in Pakistan because she was going to school. She would later win a Nobel Peace Prize for her activism promoting education for girls and women in some of these nations. She and our son are about the same age. And I remember asking him when she was 14 years old and won a Nobel Peace Prize, what have you done this week? Now, I was joking. I'm very proud of my son and his accomplishments. I'm proud of his sisters and their accomplishments as well. But we can look at people like Malala or Martin Luther King Jr. or Neil Armstrong or other political, religious, or cultural leaders whose lives, whose lives have made huge impacts. And we can look at them and think, what about me? I live in Bardstown, Kentucky. What difference can I make? You know, I have no idea how many people in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, that we encounter, that we either meet one time and never hear from again, or some we meet and we never even learn their names. In Acts chapter 8, we meet a guy that is only identified as an Ethiopian eunuch. Of all of the features that this guy had in his life, I would guess that being a eunuch was not the one that he would want everyone to know for all of eternity. John chapter 4. We meet a woman at the well. No name. Just five failed relationships. Matthias, who is chosen in Acts chapter 1 to be the 12th apostle after Judas died. He had evidently been with Jesus and all the other apostles through every single story that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yet his name is not mentioned one single time. And when he is anointed, appointed, commissioned as an apostle in Acts chapter 1 verse 26... His name is never mentioned again. Not a single time. The rest of Scripture. We all need to understand our importance, our significance, our impact on this world. But sometimes it's a struggle. Sometimes it's a struggle. Paul here in this passage gives us a deep picture of our significance Especially in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Walking in Christ in good works. Paul details those the rest of this letter, but I want us to see two areas. Two areas where God makes our lives significant when we walk as new creations in Christ. 
The first of those is changing the direction of someone's eternity. In 1 Corinthians, the church was struggling and arguing about significance. They tied their significance to which apostle or which leader they followed. Some Peter, some Paul, some Apollos. Some said we just have no leader but Jesus. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, helps us see where our significance comes in. Paul says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. God gave the growth. We did what we were called to do, and God gave the growth. Paul affirms this. He affirms the importance of this significance in Romans chapter 10, verse 13 and 14, where he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Beautiful proclamation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be, not could be, but will be. But he goes on in verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Preaching here is not pastoring, but rather it is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. That's the level of significance. A great cloud of witnesses. So he says, let's lay aside every weight, every sin, which so eat, so clings to us so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are both called and gifted to the eternally significant work, the good work in Christ of sharing the gospel with a lost world so that they might hear and that hearing they might believe and that by believing they might confess and that by confessing they will no longer be children of wrath but raised with Jesus in life in the heavenly places. Our significance may never be seen on this side of eternity. And if it's not, then that's okay. But sometimes, sometimes it is. Sometimes it is seen. And this is the second area of significance I want us to see this morning. The phrase one another is used in various contexts about 150 times in the New Testament. But this morning I want us to see the significant work of what God tells us in regard to loving one another. I'm going to read several passages of scripture here. Romans chapter 10, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12 verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans chapter 12 verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 and 12. Brothers rejoice. Aim for restoration. 
comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Galatians 5.13, through love serve one another. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, abound in love for one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another, build one another up. James chapter 4 verse 11, do not speak evil of one another. John, 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Beloved, do we want to live a life of significance? Then in Christ, let us faithfully walk in the good works that God has prepared. And as we are conformed to the image of Christ, we continue to be his workmanship. That is the life of significance that we find in Christ. And with all of these, I'd love to stay here, but I want to talk a few minutes about love. What about love? Love is a fragile commodity in our culture today. It's misdefined, misunderstood, abused, and fickle. Often love is connected to giving me what I want or letting, be, letting me be who I want to be. We're hurt when we don't get what we want. And when that happens, we often accuse our parents, our pastors, our bosses, our teachers, our culture, or whoever. We accuse them of not loving us. You just don't love me is the cry that has come from all of our mouths at one time or another. Sometimes it is from the immature child who doesn't really understand that you're not letting them play with a rattlesnake is protecting him. But sometimes it comes from us who should know better. Paul takes a close look at love in the opening passages to his letter to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1 we see that it was love that motivated God to save us in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In verse 5 of chapter 1, we see that the church's faith in the Lord Jesus translated to love towards all the saints. And in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, we see that it was God's love that was demonstrated by mercy in our new life. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us to lie together in Christ. This last one Paul refers to as great love. Friends, I fear 
that too often we seek worldly acceptance and call it love. We seek worldly approval and call it love. Or we seek worldly positions, either as victim or as victor, and we call it love. This is not the love that God describes. In God's view, to love someone means to sacrifice for them, to sacrifice everything for them. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God showed His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The author of the Song of Solomon in chapter 8, verse 6 says, Love is strong as death. Physical death does not have to be the evidence of love in your life. But know this. Jesus died because he loves you. In him, in Christ, we can know a love. A love that is patient and kind. A love that does not envy or boast. A love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. A love that never ends. And when Paul closes that beautiful chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, of all the things we've got, the greatest of these is love. You are loved. And you can love. And so let me encourage you, and let me encourage us to love unconditionally while knowing that we will be loved conditionally. Love fully and completely as Christ loved you, knowing that you will be loved inconsistently. Choose to love even the unlovable. And choose to love even when you're not. Finally, let's talk about hope. If truth is objective and universal, if it's knowable in Christ, and if in Christ I know value and significance and love, what is there to look forward to? What keeps me going? You know, I, I seldom quote movies, but in one of the Hunger Game movies from several years ago, President Snow was a, a diabolical tyrant who played on the fears of people to maintain power and authority. To subvert his people, he offered them an illusion of hope. One line from the movie, he says, Hope is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective, but a lot of hope is dangerous. The danger he feared is that the people would begin to really believe 
they could win. I think sometimes we find hope in a similar setting. We have a little to get us through the day. Maybe. But we really aren't sure if there's enough hope to get us through life. Is there meaning? Does it really matter? Does it really, really matter? Beloved, in Christ, we have a lot of hope. First, I want us to see what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. The hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Hope is not our capacity to overcome. Hope is Christ's finished work that has overcome. He is not here, the angel said at his tomb, but he has risen, just as he said he would. But hope, hope never really seems to show up until we, meet, until we need it. And I mean we really, really need it. Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's a strange statement. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul exhorts the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. The author of Hebrews in chapter 6 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And then the Apostle John, with such tenderness. 1 John chapter 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Then is the ways of the world. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Later, Paul will tell us in Ephesians chapter 2 that having no hope means being without God in this world. Hope is not dangerous. It is liberating. You don't have to worry any longer about making it. You've made it when Christ died and rose again. You don't have to worry about value or significance or love or hope 
because we have all of it in Christ. We find the answers to our questions in Christ. This morning I want to close with a reading from Psalm 119. I'm going to read from verse 41 to 48, but this is a beautiful psalm. 176 verses centering us on the absolute, eternal truth of God's Word and the hope, the love, the significance, and the value of it and of us who receive His Word. Psalm 176, beginning in verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place. For I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your, towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that we have value. It means that we have significance. It means that we have love and we have hope. It means that it's okay. It's okay to ask all the hard questions of life. Because it means we have an absolute, objective, noble truth that makes a difference in our lives and helps us answer those hard questions. It means that in Christ, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, in Christ, we live and move and have our being. Father, this morning we thank you for the gift of being in Christ. We thank you that in Christ there is value. There is hope. There is significance and there is love. We thank you that in Christ we are not dead in trespasses and sins. But we are made alive. And we are spiritually blessed in the heavens. And we are raised to walk in the newness of life in Him. Father, this morning we struggle to walk in Him. We struggle with doubts and fears and uncertainty. We struggle with worry and anxiety. And so I would pray, Father, this morning that you would remind your church, remind your people that you are 
You are the master of the masterpiece that you are making in your church. And that you have already prepared the way in which we should go. And that by faith, through repentance and belief, in Christ we can walk that journey. We know it will be difficult. We know there will be questions. We know there will be struggles. But in Christ, we walk it with Him and we walk it together. Father, I pray and I know that there may be some here who are not in Christ. They have not come to a place of repentance and belief. They have not come to a place where they are being recreated in the image of Christ. And that in this world without God there is no hope. Not just no hope for heaven and eternity. While that is enough. There is no hope to walk this journey today. There is no answer to these questions of life. And so Father I would pray this morning that you would draw us. Draw the lost. Draw the saved to you. That we would repent and believe. That we would that we would rest in Christ, in the hope of His glory, in the beauty of His significance, in the value of His life and death, and in the hope that is eternally secured for us in the heavens. The Father, today, Your Word would go forth and someone would be saved. May your word would go forth and someone would be strengthened. Father, we thank you that in the midst of this hymn of praise, this exaltation of your worth that the apostle brings to us in these opening words of Ephesians, we thank you that in the end we find the foundation in two very small words. In Christ. In Christ Jesus. In Him. In the Beloved. So Father, as we get up here in just a moment and begin to walk our way this week, I would pray that you would keep every step in Him. I would pray that you would keep every heart in Him. I would pray that you would keep every doubt and fear and struggle in Him. I would pray that you would keep every question in Him. And that we would know you better. We would look like you more. We would love you more. That we would stand in awe of your beauty even more. That we see your grace abound. As you do your kingdom work in this place. We trust you. We love you. We worship you. And we do all of that in Him. In Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray.